The Guardian. Hello again, Ian Sample here. In Tuesday's episode, we heard part of my conversation from 2016 with the recent Nobel laureate, Professor Sir Roger Penrose. In it, we heard him warn of an over-reliance on dogma, including some concerns he has about string theory. He finished by teeing up his own theory of consciousness. So where did this theory of his come from? It really sprung from, I think, a long time. When I was a graduate student uh, in Cambridge, and I went, I, I was working on algebraic geometry, I think, in pure mathematics. But I went to lots of lectures, particularly three courses of lectures, which had nothing to do, I thought, with what I was doing. One was Bondi's course on general relativity and cosmology, a beautiful course, absolutely dramatic and very elegantly presented. And another course was one given by Paul Dirac, one of the real founders of quantum mechanics. Considering atoms to be something very mysterious and quite beyond the range of ordinary dynamical laws. And then it was a revelation to me to hear about the atom of Rutherford and Bohr. This raised in my mind this problem about how quantum mechanics makes sense of these superpositions when you have macroscopic objects. And uh, then the third was a course on mathematical logic, which I went to, and it made sense of things like Gödel's famous theorem about um, problems with provability in mathematics. And... uh, things about Turing machines, the, what is the basis, the mathematical basis of computers. So I knew about computational ideas, what they meant. I knew about non-computability and the fact that this seemed to feature in our thinking about mathematics. And I knew about this problem of quantum mechanics. And I think at that scale, I formulated the view, although not for many years did I even squeak about it, <laughs> the view that in our brains there must be something going on which is outside the scope of computation. And if it's that, and if it's something physical, what can it be? And the only gap I could see in our physical laws, most of which seem to be things you could put on a computer, was this gap in quantum mechanics. And this is what Dirac, in thinking about his lectures, made clear to me. The ordinary classical laws, except for that part of the force on the electron which is associated with the emission of radiation. That part of the force, which is just a small part, has to be cut out. If our brains are doing things which are not purely computational, which is what I do believe, mainly based on the Gödel argument, which seemed to be a very powerful argument, that when you're thinking about understanding things in mathematics, it's this understanding, whether it's mathematics or anything, is something which is not a computational activity, which involves our conscious perception of it. And there's this other mystery about what consciousness is. And whereas I might previously have had the view that, okay, maybe it's something to do with having a very complicated calculation going on, I never really thought that could be the answer. It seems to be something so different. have a possibility of stable orbits. And further, the stable orbits have to be subjected to certain quantum conditions, certain new conditions quite foreign to anything which we have in classical mechanics. But it was just an idea. Then I wrote my book, The Emperor's New Mind. I I thought by the time I got to the end of the book, I will know what it is in the brain which could has a chance of taking 
advantage of these quantum effects, and I, the uh, trouble was I didn't. I, I, <laughs> I could, whatever I learned about the brain didn't seem to answer this question. But fortunately for me, um, Stuart Hameroff, who is an anesthesiologist in, in the United States, in Arizona, and he wrote to me, good old-fashioned letter, he wrote to me and says, I think you may need to know about these things called microtubules. And I thought, my God, <laughs> that could be it. And so we subsequently formulated this view of what might be going on in conscious activity. The question is, how do you make these little tubes preserve quantum effects? Can you make those in a way which somehow translates itself from one microtubule to the next in a cell or from one cell to the next so that you get some coherent activity across the brain. But of course there's a lot we don't know and I, d I don't know in detail what's going on. I'm not even anything like an expert on that area. Going back to the evidence, is there a good reason to think that quantum physics has anything substantial to do with consciousness or is this really saying we don't understand quantum very well we don't understand conscious very well perhaps there's a link between them which obviously isn't a, a great motivation for a theory let me just say I, it, this is a criticism often people raise they say isn't it well here's a mystery here's a mystery and i'm just saying this no it's much more than that i'm not sure how strongly i want to emphasize this but one way i tend to say this now you see i've never really said much about free will in my arguments because i really am not sure i know what it means and this that this and that but in this kind of scheme, there is something where nature has to make a choice. You see, does it do one thing or the other? And the choice is made by nature. And normally this is a random choice that it doesn't have any consequence. And what the claim is here is that even though that's a random choice, and it, it, it is the building block of what we call consciousness. It's not an idea that is new, that people in quantum theory have talked about this right from the beginning. But what is a bit new is that people tended to think that the uncertainty in quantum mechanics, say an electron might go one way or the other or something, and that uncertainty has to be, if it's going to be anything to do with free will or something, it's got to be magnified up to a big scale. It's not that at all. What I'm saying is that what, whether it does one thing or another happens at a big scale. The electron going one way or the other goes both ways and it keeps track of both routes. And so do the neutrons and so do the particles and so do the chemical elements and they're doing one thing or another and they're doing the A or B at once. So these superpositions are there. It's only when they reach a certain level where they disturb the space-time geometry, that's the argument, that the choice of one or the other has to be made. So the argument is that this is at a level not of individual particles or individual chemical constituents. It's a much more global thing. So this is where the argument is different from the old ideas that uh, somehow the uncertainties and the decisions, the sort of probabilities in quantum theory are maybe where free will comes in and we don't have determinism. You see, that idea is, is a very old one. And I should say that there are now a number of instances in biology where we do know that quantum coherence takes place. One of these is being photosynthesis, which is a remarkable effect, which is now appreciated as a quantum coherent effect. 
and things like uh, how birds migrate and how they can detect magnetic fields and things like that, which seems also to be an effect of this sort. Whether it's quantum consciousness or black holes, much of Roger's thinking takes its lead from the world of numbers. So perhaps it's no surprise he declares himself a trialist as opposed to a dualist when it comes to describing the nature of reality. So I have the three worlds and the three mysteries which connect them. So the two of the worlds, one of them is the mathematical platonic world, the second is the world of physical objects, and the third is the mental world of our conscious perceptions and so on. And the relationships between them are the mysteries. As a mathematician, one uh, has a feeling of mathematics having a reality of its own, which is timeless, and the universe seems to act in accordance with mathematics. So that I imagine there's this platonic world, and it has a reality of its own. It's certainly different from the reality of physical objects, but it's there. And if you're a mathematician, it, it acquires this reality, this objective existence in a way. And then it's connected with the physical world of objects like chairs and tables and microphones and so on. And these seem to obey very, very precise laws of physics, mathematical laws. So the idea is that the physical world does operate according to precise mathematics, and that's mystery number one. Mystery number two is how it is that in the physical world certain things come together and create consciousness. It's quite incredible. And mystery number three is how is it that consciousness can somehow perceive these absolute truths of mathematics. And I like to put it as a sort of triangle, an impossible triangle really, where each one, it's a small part of each world, seems to encompass the entirety of the next one. It's a very tiny part of that world of mathematics which seems to govern our physical world. It's a very, very tiny part of the physical world which seems to evoke this phenomenon of consciousness. And it's a very tiny part of the activity of consciousness which grapples with the mathematical world. So I have it as a sort of paradoxical triangle. And I find, I find it's a rather useful way of talking about things. I mean, that's all I would say. It, I hope that it clarifies to some degree how we think about these different forms of reality. With an illustrious career spanning nearly six decades, Penrose has won numerous awards and was knighted in 1994. But what does he feel stands out as his most important achievement? I hate to say this, it's something we haven't actually talked about, which is a thing called twister theory, that's twistor with, a, with an O, which is a, a way of looking at how you describe nature. And it's not really a, a new theory as it stands. It's a different way of looking at space, time, and so on. You translate it into a different framework. Now, it's a very mathematical scheme, and with regard to implications for physics, it's pretty hard to point to anything which the theory actually says, I mean, which you could experimentally test. It's much more a mathematical scheme which is incomplete, 
there's a big fundamental problem, which I refer to as the googly problem, which I think may be close to a solution, but when you get to my age, maybe things slow down asymptotically, and <laughs> whether this will ever be reached is another question, but I hope so. That would be, uh, if I can you know, make a real impact on that particular problem, it would be great. And what sort of picture of the universe does it paint, though, Twister Theory? Well, it says that points, you see, one tends to think about space and time, it's made up of these things called events. So an event is a point in space-time. It has, it has no spatial dimension, it has no temporal dimension, so it's just a blip at one point. Now what Twister theory says is, no, that's not the most primitive object. The most pr primitive object is something much more like a light ray. So you think of the entire ray of light, if you like the history of a photon, which goes, starts somewhere and goes zipping off to somewhere um, way, way off. And that entire thing, is the analog of a point. So you construct a geometry where the points are those light rays. Now that's a first approximation to the whole scheme and it gets much more sophisticated, particularly involving uh, these things called complex numbers where you have to take the square root of minus one and it relates to quantum mechanics through that and it relates to general relativity through the idea of, of light rays and so on. It's a scheme which does a lot of other things and has become, I should say, slightly fashionable in relation to where string theory has gone, which is a little ironic, but never mind. <laughs> Very finally, Roger, what's next? Well, I think, you know, maybe something will happen in Twister theory, but I think that as regards observational things, there are two. One, one possibility is on the quantum mechanics scale. It is very possible that observations will say either I'm wrong and then I'm back to the drawing board there or maybe these observations will say whoops they do seem to follow this rather than what standard quantum mechanics says. So that's one place where observations might well within the next decade very possibly say something about that. The other thing which I claim is already being said by observation although it's hard to persuade other people about this has to do with the cosmology scheme I have which says that what we currently believe as the history of our universe, but without the inflationary phase, the very rapid expansion, which is supposed to have happened in the first 10 to the minus 32 seconds or something, that is the current picture we have of the universe. And I'm saying that picture is highly incomplete, that the final state of the universe, I, I was really stimulated to think about this by thinking how boring that is. I mean, we've got a universe where absolutely nothing of interest is going on. And it's a very emotional argument, I agree. It seemed to me a, a terrible fate for this wonderful universe we have. And then I thought to myself, well, who's going to be bored by this universe? Not us, but the things that will be primarily around will be photons. And very, it's very hard to bore a photon for two reasons. One is it probably doesn't have its own experiences, but the other reason, which is really what I'm talking about, is that a photon does not register the passage of time. It has no feeling for the scale of things. The geometry of the universe is not a metric geometry. A metric geometry, that means it's based on the idea of a length or of a time. Uh, but if you don't have that concept anymore, you have what's called a conformal geometry. A conformal geometry just knows the speed of light. It doesn't know uh, anything which gives you the scale and very big and very small are, are equivalent very big and very cold is the same as very small and very hot so if they're massless entities they don't know big from small and therefore the big bang is completely equivalent to the remote future of some 
previous eon, as I'm calling it. So we have our eon from Big Bang to remote future, and prior to this was another eon, prior to that was another eon. Now you might say, how, how will we ever know? Well, here's the point. I, I asked myself, what is the most violent thing I could think of which has any chance of sending a signal through from one eon to the next? So, well, I thought of, well, our galaxy has in it a black hole which is about four million times the mass of the Sun. We are on a collision course with the Andromeda galaxy, which has a black hole, I don't know, 40 times bigger or something. It's, it's, it's a good deal bigger than ours. And when we collide, which won't be for a few thousand million years, but never mind, when we collide, these black holes, even if they don't hit each other head on, which they probably won't, they'll kind of sense each other out and eventually spiral into each other, and then there will be one whacking great explosion when they fall into each other. It's the same kind of thing that we now know happened from the LIGO observations. On a much smaller scale, we know that black holes spiral into each other and send out these gravitational wave signals. But this is something on a fantastically larger scale, so much bigger that these signals will get through from one eon to the next. There will be dark matter in the early stages of the next eon, and this dark matter will be given a little kick, which is certain, will give a temperature effect which we should be able to see. Now, I claim that we already see these signals. It's just that they're, they're not yet properly accepted as being real signals, and there's a lot of arguments about them so far. Reasonable enough. That's the sort of thing science is about. You argue about them, and then eventually either they're refuted or, or people have to believe them one way or the other. And that's all we have time for this week. Special thanks to Professor Sir Roger Penrose. We'll be back next week with two new episodes for you. See you then. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.